If you have your Bibles, turn with me to the book of Nehemiah chapter 7, the seventh chapter in the book of Nehemiah. We've been moving through this book, for those of you that have been here for a while, we've been moving through this book now for, boy, a couple of months, I guess. And uh, today will be the kind of the time where we take a break. We'll, we'll cover chapter 7 today, and uh, we'll step out of Nehemiah for uh, a few weeks as we move up close to Christmas and into the new year, pick it up again early in January. But uh, it's a natural break too, by the way. If you've read through Nehemiah, this is going to be a perfect place for us to take a little break. But man, what an important message that we're going to see out of this chapter, chapter 7 in the book of Nehemiah. Well, let me ask you a question. Don't raise your hand when I ask this question. I don't want to implicate anybody here. Some of you are probably going to get some elbows to the ribs possibly, and uh, you're, you're going to be implicated one way or the other. But how many of you would say, that when you think this through, that you are really good at starting something but not so good at finishing something? something. You know, you're really good at starting. You know, you get fired up when it's time to start a new project or you got so you got like 48 things going on at the house. You, know, you got carpet ripped out and a wall in some place in disrepair. You know, you've got the yard half cut. You know, you're really good at starting, but you're not so good at finishing. You know, there, there are those that do both well, and then there are those that kind of get the front end, you know, for the most part. You know, what we've seen in Nehemiah is that Nehemiah started well, but he also finished well, and he continued. And that's what we're going to kind of see today. And, uh, and, and the cool thing is, is that he is really a reflection of God in, in a lot of ways. I mean, he's not God, but he reflects God because God is very good at starting stuff, but he's also God who finishes what he starts. When you think about it, in, in, in the very beginning in Genesis, in creation, you know, God created for five days, didn't he? Five straight days. And then on the, day, the sixth day, day six, he creates mankind. He creates Adam and he creates Eve. And then he rests on day seven. What he started, he completed. You move into the next uh, book in Scripture, the book of Exodus, and you find that God's people, he's raised up a group of people called the Israelites, people after his own heart, his own people, right? And they're in Egyptian bondage. They're in slavery in Egypt at the beginning of Exodus. God raises up a leader. He uh, begins the process of setting them free. This leader's name is Moses. Moses leads them ultimately out of Egyptian slavery. They come to the Red Sea. You know, you've seen the movie, right? You've read, you've read the book. And the Red Sea parts, they move through on dry ground, they get to the other side, they wander the wilderness for a while, seems like everything's over, God bailed out, God gave up early, no he didn't, he raises up another leader named Joshua, Joshua leads them into the promised land, what God starts, God always finishes. Jesus comes, right? He shows up. He'd been prophesied for centuries by the Old Testament prophets. He gets here. He shows up, born of the Virgin Mary, laid in a manger. Wise men come to see him. Shepherds come to see him. Everybody comes to see him. He lives in virtual obscurity for 30 years. It seems like God started well, but then what happened? 30 years of silence, so to speak. And uh, Jesus' public ministry begins at the age of 30. And for three years, right? He's changing lives. He is proclaiming to be God. He dies on a cross. It looks like God didn't finish what he started. Three days later, he rises again. 40 days, he's ascended to the Father. What God starts, God finishes. And by the way, there are huge implications for us as well, because in Philippians 1 verse 6, it says that he who began a good work in you, if you've given your life to Jesus Christ, he who started a good work in you, Philippians 1 says, that he will be faithful to complete it. He'll carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. And that is really, really good news, because what God started in your life, it doesn't matter if you feel like you are in the gutter today, it doesn't matter if you feel like you're at the worst spot in your life today, where it's never been darker than today, if you've given your life to Christ, man, I'm telling you, God God didn't bring you this far to leave you on a curb and say, I'll catch you when you get to heaven, right? God finishes what he starts. He does it throughout scripture. He does it in the lives of believers today. He does it in his church, the church that honors him. God is faithful. And what we see here today in the book of Nehemiah is that Nehemiah has been placed by God 
amongst the people of God, the people of Judah, in the city of Jerusalem. They needed a wall, right? There's it's about a mile, about one and a half square miles around the city of Jerusalem, different than today. It's much bigger today. In Nehemiah's day, 450 years before Jesus would come, there's about a mile and a half square miles around the city of Jerusalem, and they needed a wall. And so God leads Nehemiah to leave Persia, you know, to leave, to leave where he was working for the king there and to travel a thousand miles. And Nehemiah is now going to oversee this building project. And he oversees this project. They face opposition. They face discouragement. They face distraction. They face compromise. They face all this stuff that the enemy throws their way. And in 52 days, I mean, you can look this up in the Guinness World Records. I bet it's in there. It's the fastest wall ever built around the city of Jerusalem. 52 days. He rebuilds this wall around the city of Jerusalem. And this is a massive structure. He does it with volunteer labor. <laughs> he didn't sub, sub this stuff out. This is volunteer labor, but pretty much. And they get this wall done, rebuilt in 52 days around the city. Now, here's the thing, that when we come to chapter 7, the wall is done. It is completed. Okay, the wall is up, the, 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 the gates, you know, if you want to call them doors, you know, those are all there. They're hung. The, the, it's done. It's finished. But what Nehemiah does next, as we close out chapter 7, kind of this first phase, of God rebuilding the wall, what he does next is perhaps the most important three decisions that he'll make in this whole entire project. See, what we do after a big event helps us to see what's most important. You take a new job, okay? Your first day on the job, what are you doing? You're mentally kind of taking a survey of the landscape. You know, if you're a leader, if you're a boss, if you're a decision maker in that new job, you're finding out who the other leaders are. You're finding out who the decision makers are. You're deciding what needs to be done and how quickly you're setting up a timeline. What you do after hiring onto that job is going to show what is most important. If you move into a new home, right, you get a new apartment or a condo or a house or wherever you may live, and you move into that new home, you're going to begin immediately to, to look and say, hey, we need some paint on these walls. Hey, we need a, you know, this wall gone because it's, it's beyond, beyond hope. We need new flooring. You know, we need this. We need that. You're deciding what to do, what furniture to bring. You know, do I need to go get some, some new furniture? You're making all those decisions. And what you do after that big moment you know, of moving into your new home is going to show what's important to you. And it's much the same for Nehemiah. He has now finished this project, building this wall, and now he's going to make three big, huge decisions. And they're not just decisions buried in the middle of the Bible from 2,450 years ago. All three of these decisions have a very, very loud voice as they speak into decisions that we have to make in our own lives and our own relationships with God today. And so let's just begin walking through those. If you've already looked through chapter 7 this morning, You've seen a lot of verses there, and probably your question is, all right, I'm already getting hungry, and my stomach's already growling, and I see a lot of verses here with a lot of big, hard names, and I know Brooks isn't smart enough to read through all those names, so you're exactly right. I'm not going to read through every one of these names. I'm not going through every verse, but we're going to cover all of chapter 7 this morning. Nehemiah does three things. The first thing he does as soon as he finishes this job in 52 days, the wall is done, is that he decides to put into place what is necessary to protect what has been entrusted to him. Once the wall is done, Nehemiah has a decision to make as a leader. And he makes the decision to do what is necessary to protect what has been entrusted to him. Now, why do I say it that way? Because this wall was never Nehemiah's idea. All right? This started with God. Now, God burdened Nehemiah's heart in chapter 1 to go back and to help build this wall to protect the people. This was a very important step for them. But it was never something that started with Nehemiah. It started with God. God put in Nehemiah's heart to get, to get back to Jerusalem a thousand miles away and to, 
ultimately oversee this project. But this was God's work, and everything had been entrusted to Nehemiah. His skills, his leadership ability, his resources that he obtained, the people that he would work with, and the project itself all belonged to God. And it is as though God said, Nehemiah, I am entrusting all of this to you. And so Nehemiah now builds the wall, and he decides then to protect what has been entrusted to him. And here's why he had to protect it, because there are still enemies in the area. One, a man by the name of Tobiah that you have already met. In fact, look, look back a chapter to chapter 6, verse 17 through verse 19. It kind of reemphasizes what Tobiah is doing, an enemy of this work. It says, also in those days, many letters went from the nobles of Judah to Tobiah. And Tobiah's letters came to them. For many in Judah, all right, that's God's people, the people in Jerusalem, many in Judah were bound by oath to him because he was the son-in-law of Shechaniah, the son of Ara, and his son Jehoanan had married the daughter of Meshullam, the son of Berechiah. All right, I know you're, you're totally on board with all those names now. Verse 19, moreover, they were speaking about his good deeds in my presence and reported my words to him. Then Tobiah sent letters to frighten me. So let me just kind of summarize all this. Tobiah is an enemy of the work, and he has been from the very beginning. Tobiah, however, had influence among the Jewish people by virtue of his marriage, you know, through his wife and as well through, uh, through, his, through his daughter at the same time as well. He had influence amongst some of the leaders in Jewish culture. For example, if, if we won't do this, but if you go back to chapter 3, verse 4, you'll see this name, Meshullam, right, that I just read. Meshullam was one that's mentioned in chapter 3. I hope I don't lose you here. But he's mentioned in chapter 3 as a worker on the wall. I mean, he's in here full bore, right? He's, he's going and blowing. I mean, he is moving. He, he is helping Nehemiah to accomplish this task. But when we get to chapter 7, what we find out, is that Tobiah's son, right, an enemy, was married to Meshullam's daughter. I mean, you think you had issues at Thanksgiving dinner, right? I mean, there's a dynamic going on here that is not good, <laughs> okay? You've got an enemy of God, work, God and his work, an enemy of Nehemiah, an enemy of God's people, who's kind of like somewhat married into the family of the Jews. And he's stirring the pot. He's sending letters trying to frighten uh, uh, Nehemiah. He's trying to ultimately undo the work that God is doing, even though the wall is done. Tobiah knows the work is not done. And listen, the enemy never sleeps. Your enemy will be glad to wait however long it takes, a year, five years, 10 years, 20 years, or longer, to do whatever it needs to bring you down, to ruin your reputation, to damage your testimony for Christ, and to drag God through the mud with it. The enemy never, ever sleeps. And so what Nehemiah's first step is, is that he begins to protect what was entrusted to him. Look at what it says in chapter 7, verse 1. Let's move into chapter 7 now. He says, verse 1, it's as though Nehemiah is writing in his journal. He says, now when the wall was rebuilt, okay, it's all done, and I had set up the doors, everything's closed off, and the gatekeepers and the singers and the Levites were appointed, right? Who were they appointed by? By Nehemiah. Then I put Hanani, my brother, and that's more than likely his literal blood brother. You know, it's not just like a brother in God, you know. This is his, more than likely his brother. He was in chapter 1-2. I put Hanani, my brother, Hanani, the commander of the fortress, in charge of Jerusalem. For he was a faithful man and feared God more than many. And then I said to them, do not let the gates of Jerusalem be opened until the sun is hot. In other words, don't be open in access to the city when everybody's asleep. You wait till the sun gets up, and then we open access to the city so that the enemies can't come in. He says, and while they're standing guard, let them shut and bolt the doors. In other words, at the end of day, you know, don't just be deciding whenever you want to just close off the gates. You make sure that it is guarded when you do that, 
Also appoint guards from the inhabitants of Jerusalem, each at his post and each in front of his own house. What is Nehemiah doing here? He is taking steps to protect what, what has been entrusted to him. He mentions two men by name. Let's just go back a slide if we can uh, earlier in this passage. Two men he mentions by name. The first Hananiah and the other Hananiah. Both of them he puts in position as gatekeepers. Hananiah is mentioned specifically as being the one in charge of, of the fortress. The, he was the commander of the fortress. The fortress was, was in the temple area, and it was strategically located to guard the, the north part of the wall, which was most vulnerable to attack. So Nehemiah sees this, and he puts the right people in place to guard, don't miss this, to guard what had been entrusted to him. And the two qualities that he looks for in this person, Hananiah, you'll see him highlighted there, is one, faithfulness, and the other, that he feared God more than many. Nehemiah didn't just go looking for the biggest, strongest, baddest dude on the block, right? Because there are a lot of those around. What he wanted to know was that there would be somebody he could trust. And so he goes looking for issues of the heart. I want to see a man who is faithful, and I want to see a man who fears God. That's a man I can trust. That's a man who's going to buy into this whole deal. That's a man who's going to do what he's asked to do. And he puts these people in place. Why would we ever build something at great effort and great cost if we're not willing to protect it? You see, Nehemiah had put a lot of effort into this. He had taken a lot of junk off a lot of people. He had had a lot of hard conversations, and he had given up a lot of himself. He could have had it easy back in the palace in Persia, but he had given up a lot to oversee this project. Why on earth would he build something without then taking steps to protect it? It makes perfect sense what he's doing. Let me ask this question. Why do we build things and not take the steps to protect them? Why do we build integrity, one hard decision, one wise decision at a time? Why do we build integrity only to fail to protect that integrity when we get to a weak place where we didn't put up our, 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 our protective guards around us? Why do we build integrity and then get to our 30s and our 40s and our 50s and just kind of begin to coast and go with the flow, let our guard down, only to see everything we worked for undone in an instant in one poor moment of poor decision-making? And our decision is gone, our, our integrity is gone. Why? Because we did not protect what had been entrusted to us. God has given some of you spouses. He's given some of you families, children, grandchildren. Why do what we need to do to be able to have spouses and to have families and to experience those blessings, but then not make the hard decisions to do what's necessary to protect what God has entrusted to us? How many families have we seen that have been blessed with each other, and yet there's a husband, perhaps, that worked, worked so much harder on building his career and climbing the corporate ladder and accomplishing some goals he's had since high school, right? And he works at all that, and he finally gets to the pinnacle, only to look and find that his family's nowhere to be found because he did not protect what had been entrusted to him. And let me just say... For every one of us, starting with the guy who speaks up here every Sunday, extending all the way back to the back row, and whoever may listen to this on the internet for however long after this message is preached, for every single one of us, we cannot afford to coast. We cannot afford to think that our enemy sleeps. We cannot afford to miss the opportunity to protect what God has entrusted to us. 
You know, you may raise children and you'd seek to raise them right only for the time when they hit their, their, their middle school, high school years. And all the boundaries that they need the most then, just sort of letting them fall by the wayside. Because you may not be protecting what God has entrusted to you. By the way, let's just speak about church for a second. Have we all heard of churches in this country that once stood on the gospel and yet it became too costly to stand on the gospel and so it didn't become about the gospel anymore? It became about the show and it became about the speaker and it became about the personalities and it became about selling CDs and it became about something other than the gospel and they began to weaken on what God had planted them to do and they didn't guard and protect what was entrusted to them and now today the church is no longer existent in some cases and powerless in others. Man, God has placed us as a church to stand on the message of the gospel. He's placed us here. Let me just say as well, we live in a country that is becoming more and more increasingly hostile to the message of the gospel. We don't have an issue in this country so much with people who are hostile towards Christians. Though we see stories of that and we, and, you know, we read those in the newspaper, we see them on the news. Yes, there is a certain amount of hostility towards Christians, but it's not because of hostility aimed at Christians. It's because this country is increasingly more hostile to the message of the gospel. We don't want to be told, I won't say we, the world does not want to be told that that they have a sin problem. I don't mind you telling me I got a sin problem. I've known that for a long, long time, all right? I've owned up to that, you know, in my own life, and I know I need a Savior. I know I need a Savior every single day. So I don't have a problem with sin in my life in regards to owning it. I have a problem with undoing it in my life. But I understand full well in my life that I'm a sinner in need of constant salvation by my Savior. However, this world in which we live, this culture in which we navigate, does not want to be told that they're sinners. And therefore do not have a need for a Savior. And therefore undo the message of the gospel. Hostility in this country is not as much aimed at Christians as it is aimed at God and the message of the gospel. And it's the church that has to protect and that has to guard what God has entrusted to us in the message of the gospel. So what's the implication for us? Here's the implication. In the same way that Nehemiah was diligent to protect what is entrusted to him, you and I as well must be diligent to protect what has been entrusted to us. And I don't know what God's entrusted to you completely. For some of us, it's going to be the same thing. But for some, what God's entrusted to you is different from the guy sitting three seats down on the same row as you are. I don't know what God's entrusted to you completely, but I know he's entrusted a lot to you. And you have to be faithful, and I have to be faithful to guard. We have to be diligent to protect what God has entrusted to us. Nehemiah would make a a second decision after he finishes and completes this wall. He makes a second decision. The second decision would be equally as important as the first. First decision he made was to protect what had been entrusted to him. Secondly, Nehemiah decides that he wants to lead the people to magnify who God is. He wants to lead the people to magnify who God is. Now, here's the interesting thing. When you see in this passage of Scripture, let's go back again to chapter 7. Look at verse verse 1 again. He says, when the wall was rebuilt, I had set up the doors and the gatekeepers. We've already talked about them. They protected what had been entrusted to them. You know, it wasn't just a wall, right? It was more than that. He puts gatekeepers in place to protect what was entrusted. But then it says in verse 1 that he also appointed singers and Levites. Now, if you're reading through the Bible in a year, and if you ever tried to read through the Bible in a year, all right? How many of you got bogged down, say, like around February, all right? (laughs) Yeah, sometimes that happens. You're like, what in the world is going on in numbers? I don't know what this book is even here for. (laughs) 
Well, say if you're reading through the Bible in a year and you're doing like your six or seven or eight chapters, you know, a day, when you get to Nehemiah, if you read through this section and you kind of go breezing through chapter seven, we're probably going to miss this, right? All of us, you know, unless we're really digging. Nehemiah does something interesting here. He appoints the gatekeepers to protect what was entrusted, but then he appoints people to ensure that God would be magnified. That sounds a little bit odd, doesn't it? He appoints specifically two groups, singers and Levites. Now, what's up with the singers? The singers, you're already familiar with this because of the structure in this church. We have something called a choir, right? We have people who lead us in singing. And, and, and in some similar fashion, that's kind of what's going on here. There were singers that were appointed. If you read through the Old Testament, singing was perhaps the most popular form of outward worship that we read of in the Old Testament. I mean, they, they had songs of praise. They had songs of thanksgiving. They had victory songs. You know, you'll read of glad shouts of praise, right? You've got all those things listed in Scripture. Singing was the most, most popular, if you want to use that term, form of outward worship to God. Not the only form. Right? You can go to work tomorrow, you can you know, work as unto the Lord, that's worship. But singing was the most popular form, the most popular outward expression of worship that we read of in the Old Testament. So what Nehemiah does is, he appoints singers. Later in chapter 7, towards the end, you'll see that there are 148 singers that he appoints. Their choir's a little bigger than ours. He appoints 148 singers that are responsible for leading the people in worship. Why? Because Nehemiah knew, do not miss this, he knew that it was not about a wall. It wasn't about just going in, completing the work, and building of this wall, and saying, you know what? All right, boys, I'm out of here. A thousand miles, I'm headed back to the king of Persia. I'm going to live in the palace. I'm going to drink his wine because I'm going to be a cupbearer to the king again. And I'm going to run with my, you know, run with my peeps. You know, I'm going to just live life and enjoy it. You know, it's going to be good back in the palace. Hey, it's all yours now. We're done with the wall. Nehemiah didn't do that. Why? Because he knew it wasn't about a wall. It was about people. And it was about seeing God get glory and God being magnified. And what Nehemiah does here is phenomenal. He appoints people called singers to ensure that the people would be led in worship, just like ours do. They lead us in worship. If you're in the choir, hear hear this. It is not about who holds a microphone. It is not about who has the best voice. It is not about, about who gets the solo. It is not about any of that stuff. It is about leading people to magnify God. This is what this was about for Nehemiah. It was about putting people in place to help lead God's people to magnify him and to worship him for who he was. And there is a component to worship that is very, very spontaneous, isn't there, right? You've experienced that maybe even today. You know, you kind of sit in your seat, you like the song, you know, you, you've heard this song before, I mean, the choir is just going and blowing, it's just going great. You know, you sort of get into it, spontaneous, you know, like, man, I really worship God today. That is great. But that's not the only way we worship. Many times worship is extremely intentional. Nehemiah appoints these singers to lead in worship because the most often the worship that moves God is worship that we choose to engage in, not just the emotional worship. Both are valuable, but it's the worship that we engage in intentionally. You know... Have you ever noticed Sunday morning is the most stressful time of the week? You ever notice that? Getting ready for church? Man, it seems like things just bottom out, don't they? And I remember when I first served in, in ministry over 20 years ago, the first pastor I ever served with, I remember him saying, I was single, I was like 24, 25, 
And I, I, I had no clue what he was talking about until later. But he said, you know what, Sunday mornings, it's just, like, it's just like the devil wakes. I forget how he said it, you know, but it was just like, you know, everything breaks loose in my house on Sunday mornings or right before church. You know, you ever had that happen? Uh, maybe y'all are more holy than the first crowd. First crowd's like, oh, yeah, I get it. I understand exactly what you're saying. You know, may, I don't know. But, uh, man, it just seems like Sunday mornings can be tough, very distracting. You know, you, here, here's what this passage is teaching me, that you can, you can leave the house, right, on a Sunday morning, and, and, you know, your kids can be fighting, and your dog and cat can be fighting, and your goldfish in separate goldfish bowls can be fighting, and maybe you and your spouse are fighting, and you can still get to church, and you can make a conscious decision volitionally as an act of your will to say, I am going to worship God today, even though I do not feel like it. That's what it means to magnify who he is. You can come in here, and the bottom have dropped out this week, and choo- still choose to worship God. You can come in here on a Sunday and just left the funeral home on a Monday, six days before, and choose to worship God. You can come to church on a Sunday and just got bad news from the doctor that week and choose to worship God. Is it easy? No, it's not. Is it possible? Absolutely. And it's not about checking the box, oh, I worship God today. It is about understanding that he is creator, we are created. He is the one worthy of being magnified. It's not about us, and it's not about our stuff, and it's not about the things we do. It is all, Rick Warren got it right 25 years ago in his book, it is all about him. And Nehemiah said this is going to happen. You know, I could leave here, and I could go, and I could just beat it on back home again, you know, and leave you guys with the wall. But no, 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 it's not about the wall. It's about worshiping God for who he is. And so he says, singers, all 148 of you, here's your role. You're going to lead these people to magnify God for who he is. But he also put another group in place, a group called the Levites. Who were the Levites? The Levites were responsible for maintaining the holiness of the temple. The Levites were the ones who were responsible to oversee the sacrifices that would be offered for sin. Remember, this is Old Testament. It was the Levites' responsibility to ensure not so much that worship took place in the form of singing, but the people's hearts would be aligned with God as a result of their own holiness and righteousness. The thing Nehemiah does after he finishes building this wall is he says, we're going to protect what God has entrusted to us because it's too valuable to let it go. But we're also going to make sure that we take steps so that other people, every person amongst our family, can magnify God for who he is. So let me ask you this question. When you think about magnifying God, do you provide yourself opportunities on a daily basis to magnify and worship God for who he is? I mean, not, not here. I mean, it's easy here. I mean, it really is. I mean, you, again, you know, we're here on Sunday. We're supposed to be here and do this right. I mean, it's, it's, real, it's much easier. It's not always easy. It's much easier to worship God here. What about Monday? What about Tuesday? What about Wednesday at work when you're feeling the grind? You know, what about Thursday when you're getting beat down? And what about on Friday whenever there are so many distractions of the weekend and what you want to do and all these other things and everybody's pulling at you? You know, 
are we able to worship God there? Are we able to create space and margin in our lives where we can ensure on a daily basis that we are magnifying God for who he is because it's not about the job and it's not about the money and it's not about anything else except magnifying God first and foremost. Everything else is gravy on the top. So are you creating that kind of space in your life to do that? Students, when you go to school, are you just there to be a part of, uh, you know, of that experience, to be a part of the team that you may be on, to you know, make good grades, go on to college? Or are you there as a light to that campus? Are we magnifying God for who he is in the good times and in the bad times? Nehemiah puts in place here a structure to ensure that in every aspect of their life, in their work, at their play, through their giving, you'll see that in a second, in every aspect of life that God would be magnified. And the second thing that stands out to me about this whole passage is that we, in the same way, have to be diligent, diligent to magnify who God is in our lives. We have to. And if there is anything that comes between or before God in your life, that is, a, that is a something that is out of place badly and needs to be reprioritized, that God be first. Nehemiah does a third thing. He protects what's entrusted to him. He ultimately ensures that God would be magnified above everything else and everyone else. But then third, what he does is he puts in front of these people an understanding he solidifies for the people who they are in their relationship with God. Look at how he does this, verse 4 through verse 6. He says, now the city was large and spacious. All right, Jerusalem's big, big city, all right? It was large and spacious, but the people in it were few and the houses were not built, you know? So they got all this stuff. They got a good temple. They got a nice wall. They got all this stuff. They got all this land, but there were not a lot of people there. Nehemiah being the phenomenal leader, visionary, planner, organizer that he is, perhaps there's no better that we read of in an earthly perspective in Scripture than Nehemiah. He has a plan. He says, verse 5, and again, it starts with God. He says, then God put into my heart to assemble the nobles, the officials, and the people to be enrolled by genealogies. So Nehemiah brings all these people together based on their genealogy. That's why through the rest of chapter 7, you see all these different listings of however many people were the sons of so-and-so and and then the sons of so-and-so. Most of chapter 7 is that, and that's what you're glad I'm not reading through. That's what I'm glad I'm not reading through because I'm not smart enough to get them all right. So, so he gets all these genealogies and he says, Then I found the book of the genealogy of those who came up first, in which I found the following record. These are the people of the province who came up from the captivity of the exiles, whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of, Je- of Babylon, had carried away, and who returned to Jerusalem and Judah, each to his city. Now remember, they had been in exile for 70 years. All right, And so ultimately they are set free, uh, we won't go into the whole story again there, but they're set free and they move like in three different waves, the people return back to their homeland to Jerusalem. So Nehemiah begins to read through the genealogies and he begins to uncover who these people are. Let's go to the next slide. I'm sorry, I, I went too far, go back again. I lost my place, sorry, that happened. See, I'm not perfect, I'm, not, I'm no Nehemiah up here, right? And so what Nehemiah does is he puts them according to their genealogies, and he, he apportions them by families. Again, you can read through that. There are all kind of different listings of people. that He lists, lists them by men according to how many and who were the priests, all these different categories of people. You read through chapter 7, and you see them laid out. And what he's doing is, is he's saying, this is who you are. You are God's people. You belong to God. You are, you are not defined by any other criteria except you are God's people. We have you listed. Here is your genealogy. This is your heritage. You are God's people. And this is a huge decision for Nehemiah to make 
Because these people in the days to come would have to understand who they were and whose they were. And it's the same battle we face today. I mean, listen, we have such a tendency in our lives to find our identity in everything other than our relationship with God. That's why it's so difficult for men when a man loses his job, if he gets fired or if he gets let go, if his job gets eliminated. That's why it's so difficult for a man who loses his job. That's why it's such an incredible struggle because we have a tendency to base our identity on what we do, not on who we are in God's sight. I don't know if you ladies understand that, but most of us men will get it completely. You know what? I can't base my identity on past, me being a pastor. That's not who I am. I'm not going to get to heaven and God say, hey, welcome, Pastor Brooks. You know, he's, that's not how he's going to identify me. I'm, I'm, that's what I do. It's not who I am. You, know, you are a child of God if you have a relationship with Christ. Now, you may be a banker, or you may be a teacher, or you may be a doctor, or you may be a student, or you may be an athlete. But that's not who you are. You are a child of God at the heart of the matter. You belong to him if you have a relationship with Christ. And if we base our identity on what we do, who are we then if we lose that? If we base our identity on where we stand in our family, hey, I'm a dad. That's who I am to the core. What happens if that changes? Hey, I'm a husband. That's who I am to the core. What happens if that that changes? Hey, I'm a businessman. That's who I am. What happens if that changes? What happens if all of that changes? The only one certainty of our identity is when we're rooted in Christ, that will never change. He will never forfeit our salvation. He will never take our salvation away. We can never give it away. We can never do anything to lose it. We are God's forever if we come to him through a relationship with Christ. And it's that one identity that lasts. It is the only identity that lasts. You are not the sum of your failures. You are not, if you have a relationship with Christ, man, I'm telling you, you are not what an abusive voice may have said you were years ago in your past. You are not someone who may be addicted or who may struggle with this or may struggle with that. Listen, if you have a relationship with Christ, you are God's, period. It's who you are. And if I could be so blunt as to say, for all of us, that if that's who we are, then can we just begin to live like it? That's what the world's waiting to see. That's the world's problem, is that there's a bunch of people up in that church, whatever city they're in, that say one thing, but they live another. If we are his, and if he lives within us through the Holy Spirit, and if he has given us everything we need for life and for godliness, then it's time that we, as children of God, begin to live lives surrendered to God so that we can live out our identity in Christ, that the world might see how amazingly wonderful he is through us. To his glory. So Nehemiah makes some big decisions. 1 Peter 2, by the way, tells us who we are. You're a chosen race. You're a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. Peter's not speaking to Israel. He's speaking to the scattered church. This applies to every one of us as believers in Jesus. So that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who's called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Again, it's about magnifying him. For you were once not a people, but now you're people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. 
So what do the people do at the end of Nehemiah chapter 7? They respond. Verse 70. Look at what it says in verse 70. Nehemiah says, Some from among the heads of the father's households gave to the work. The governor gave to the treasury a thousand gold drachmas, 50 basins, 530 priest garments. Some of the heads of father's households gave into the treasury of the work 20,000 gold drachmas, 2,200 silver minas. That which the rest of the people gave was 20,000 gold drachmas, 2,000 silver minas, 67 priest garments. I know that needs, means very little to you. Let me just summarize it. They gave almost 400 pounds of gold and about 2,500 pounds of silver. <laughs> That's what they gave to God. They gave out of who they were. It wasn't about their stuff. It was about magnifying God through their giving. They responded. Nehemiah finishes out this chapter, verse 73, verse 74. Now the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, some of the people, the temple servants, and all Israel lived in their cities. And when the seventh month came, the sons of Israel were in their cities. The chapter closes with that verse. The whole section, the first seven chapters, closes as God has now rebuilt the wall. And beginning in chapter 8, where we'll pick up in January, he's going to begin rebuilding a people. People who know who they are in him. People who magnify who he is as the chief goal of their life. And people who will seek to protect what God has entrusted to him. Let me ask you this as we close. The big three things that Nehemiah does, protect and magnify and identify. Of those three things, which one is most needed in your life this morning? Which of those three is most needed? And there's got to be one for every one of us. Which is most needed? Do you need to take more steps, greater steps? Do you need to pray about God? How can I great, more greatly protect what you have entrusted to me? Or do you need to take steps to create opportunities in your life to magnify God, not just on Sundays, but Monday through Saturday as well, to worship him and to put him on a pedestal that he deserves in every aspect of your life? Or do you need to ultimately perhaps even take the step to find your identity in Christ alone, nothing else, no one else but in Jesus? Maybe for you it's not even any of those three. Maybe for you the first step is to is to just find God to begin with by laying down your sin and inviting Jesus to come in and to forgive you and take over your life. Let's pray. God, we thank you. Thank you for the Old Testament, God. Every bit of it's true. Thank you for men like Nehemiah, Lord, who did it right. They were willing to get in the trenches where it cost them greatly. And in so doing, Lord, they not only provided in their, in their day, but they set an incredible example, powerful principles in our own lives, God, that we have things that we need to protect, that you have entrusted to us, God. And Lord, that list is endless, and it's up to us to, to take inventory of what you've entrusted to us, that we, that we be faithful, faithful to protect those blessings. God, you've put us on this earth not so that we can ultimately be blessed. You've put us on this earth to glorify you and to magnify you. Lord, along with that goes blessings. But God, our chief goal, hopefully, is to glorify you and to magnify you in the workplace, on the campus, on the ball field, in our giving, through our spending, how we handle our resources, in everything. And God, you've also called us to find our identity in you not in a job, not in an accomplishment, not in a possession, not in another person except for Jesus.
Lord, the one, the one that will never change. And so, God, whichever of those we need to focus on this morning, I pray that we'd be diligent to do that. And, Lord, for those that, that don't know you, I pray right where they sit today that they'll quickly choose to lay down their lives, their sin, and to surrender themselves to Jesus, inviting him in to forgive them and to take over from this day forward. And so, Lord, bless the decisions we need to make. God, who knows what families may be saved and rescued today? Who knows what poor decisions may be averted because we find our wisdom in fearing you? Lord, who knows how eternity may change because of decisions made right here this morning? And so use this time, we pray. For it's in Jesus' name we ask. Amen.